You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. You're listening to the WFHB Local News for Thursday, October 12th, 2023. I think the dissenting justices are correct. This decision does overturn precedent. It rolls back a couple of decades of precedent. In today's feature report, WFHB Youth Radio correspondent Gene Herr reports on affirmative action. The recent repeal of affirmative action prompted a nationwide discussion on how this affects the next generation of college applicants in the U.S. More in the bottom half of our program. So Medicaid is constantly under threat. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Prescription for Healthcare, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Medicare for All Indiana. But first, your local headlines. At the Monroe County Election Board meeting on October 5th, County Clerk Nicole Brown asked two early voting employees to speak to the board about a pay discrepancy she hopes to have rectified before the next election cycle. So what I've done today is I've invited two of my leads to come and talk about what they do, why this is important, um, what it would mean if that pay was to be reduced, especially as we are talking about going into a presidential election. So we will go from our smallest election to our largest election, um, and this could be catastrophic. So I'm hopeful that they will come up and shed more light than I can even um, shed at this time. County Attorney Molly Turner King gave some background on the issue and explained that the county wants to ensure everyone is being paid in accordance with state law. So first, I would recognize that the county values our current election workers and the hard work that they're putting into making the elections run smoothly. The county wants to compensate all election workers for that work in accordance with the law. This week, it was discovered through the assistance of the election workers that there was a discrepancy between how the state statute is written, how our salary ordinance is written, and how those individuals are um, being paid, Um, specifically the absentee board members. Um, The county is currently working on resolving this issue. I've been involved in multiple meetings this week trying to resolve this issue. In order to do so, the county is requesting that the clerk provide some additional information, and upon the receipt of that information, appropriate actions can be taken to amend our salary ordinance so that pay is in accordance with state law. Co-lead John Lutner shared how much work goes into getting poll workers scheduled and ready before Election Day. Everything else is done by the leads to summarize it. So six to eight weeks before the actual voting starts, the entire bipartisan group of leads, myself and my Democrat co-lead, Peg and her Republican co-lead, we meet and we re-engage with voter registration and election supervisor to get back together uh, following the previous election and review anything that had changed and we need to know about. Uh, We also discuss our overall plans for that, for the next election, what the dates are, the location, the layout, integrating new people, like new leadership, like we have right now, and as well as get our ID badges reissued so we can proceed as needed. 
from that point, we basically break into what I'd call the partisan activities where me and my co-lead will work pretty much together and Peg and hers will as well. And we'll start updating our master poll worker listing, uh, adding new volunteers, making some hard decisions on not asking certain people back based on their performance in the previous election. Uh, then we have to contact them to see whether they're interested in working in the current election coming up uh, or whether they're not. And this takes some time, some resources, some meeting. You know, we've previously had permission from election supervision that it's okay to come in on occasion to election central and do this work and be compensated for it. And the current uh, election supervisor, I made sure I asked him of that when he, when we first met. So then somewhere around, uh, uh, and, and we're only asking, we've only put down our time when we're at election central. There's Peggy would tell you better, but there's, hours and hours of time spent at home on our own personal devices, uh, calls, texts, et cetera, where we're, get, where we're working to get our final schedule set that we don't, we don't, we don't ask and we don't expect compensation for that. Co-lead Peggy Roberts added that she sees some of her work as a donation, but that she would appreciate compensation. I do everything at home. So I just go ahead for these first six weeks or so. I just donate my time. I feel for myself, I feel I'm just giving back to my party. I don't expect to be compensated. If you want me to, I'd be more than glad to put the hours down. But I can tell you probably I work maybe 15, 20 hours within those six weeks. It's not a a, a one day or two day thing. Uh, I mean. I was getting emails and texts up to this morning, and that goes on every day. And then, I mean, it's it's not just a, a one-day thing like a lot of your, like the regular election day is. We have more responsibilities. Lutner outlined the responsibilities that they have as leads leading up to election day. So, so then I'm, I'm four to five weeks before the voting starts, we get, we coordinate our, our, uh, our dates of early voting with voter registration. We, we get the necessary onboarding paperwork completed for each poll worker and, uh, into election central and schedule their training dates and times. We send out a mass email to all of them, uh, com communicating how many people are, how many people we need per day. And of course, everybody has a different, uh, a different objective and how long, how much they want to work. So then we have to match that with what our needs are and, uh, and their training. So three or four weeks before we're, uh, we're reviewing all those individual worker responses and we draft the work schedule for both shifts, the morning and the afternoon for all 20 days of early voting. I mean, election day is one thing. That's one day. We're doing this for 20 days. Clerk Brown corrected Lutner, saying that they work for 28 days rather than 20 days. Board member Judith Benkart asked if the problem was with how much is being paid or whether it is being paid in accordance to state law. Turner King 
responded. Molly, can you tell me whether it's an issue of how much is being paid or whether it's being paid correctly pursuant to state law? The issue is, okay, so our salary ordinance breaks it down for absentee boards, early voting, absentee boards, counters, and absentee boards, leads. Those positions do not exist in the state statute. The state statute just says absentee voter board members. The statute says that um, board members are entitled to a per diem to be set by the county fiscal, so the county council. Our salary ordinance provides for a per diem on election day only. Um, otherwise, it's an hourly rate. So we need to make these two items match. So it's not a question of is anyone doubting the hard work that the leads are putting in? No, we all acknowledge that they're doing a fantastic job of making our elections run smoothly. It's not that we don't want to pay them. It's just we have to make our salary ordinance and the state statute match. Brown expressed concern that the lead personnel will quit after this upcoming election cycle if the salary ordinance is not changed. I definitely feel I could make a case for why they need to make the same amount that people do on election day. Um, But I can tell you this. One of the leads, not here today, but one of the leads did say, we will get you through this election, but if the, essentially, if the pay, the pay is going to be reduced, good luck finding people next year. The next Monroe County Election Board meeting will be held on November 2nd. Up next, WFHB Youth Radio correspondent Jean Herr reports on affirmative action. The recent repeal of affirmative action prompted a nationwide discussion on how this affects the next generation of college applicants in the U.S. We turn to Jean Herr for more. On July 29th, 2023, the Supreme Court landed a verdict in favor of getting rid of affirmative action in college admissions. The consequence of this? Race cannot be a deciding factor when it comes to the college admissions process. WFHB News interviewed IU Morris School of Law Professor Steve Sanders, who teaches constitutional law, constitutional interpretation, family law, and constitutional litigation. He told us about the logistics of affirmative action. WFHB also interviewed Indiana District 40 Senator Shelley Yoder, who explained more about the implications of affirmative action encompassing the majority of Monroe County, which includes the Indiana University Bloomington campus. Affirmative action gives colleges another dimension to look at in terms of the students applying to them. In other words, affirmative action is crucial for a holistic review of academic credentials, extracurricular achievements, and who the person is to the core. But if we get rid of this, what is in store for the future of diversity in America? Sanders explained what affirmative action is. Well, affirmative action means different things to different people. I'm not sure there's one uh, universal definition. You know, for a long time, it simply meant taking positive steps, affirmative steps, to advance the position or the legal equality or the opportunities available to traditionally underrepresented minorities. The usual focus has been blacks, but occasionally also 
Latinx people, Asians, other other underrepresented groups. In the con in legal context, though, what we typically mean when we talk about affirmative action is an official government policy that takes account of race and uses it as a decision-making factor in a positive way. Notes, for example, that an applicant to a university or a law school is Black or Hispanic or Asian and takes that formally into account, usually in a positive way, in making a decision about that person. Sanders elaborates why he thinks the dissenting justices, Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Kentaji Brown-Jackson, are correct and arguing that it, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. Well, it does. As I said, it, it had been the, the law of the Supreme Court based on a 2003 decision that in this limited form I described, affirmative action was okay. And so the, the, the Supreme Court in this case didn't admit that they were overturning a precedent, but that's really what the decision amounts to. If you leave, read the legal reasoning in the decision, it really guts um, the core principles and the core um, theory and logic of that 2003 Grutter decision. And so I think the dissenting justices are correct. This decision does overturn precedent. It rolls back a couple of decades of precedent. Um, now, you know, it's a more contestable issue as to whether that rolls back progress or not. But um, I, I think, you know, we can assume that um, traditionally underrepresented minority groups have gotten some benefit from affirmative action, that it was decisive or determinative for some Black or Latino applicants at these universities. And now that opportunity will no longer be there. And so the prediction is that um, this will lead, at least in the short run, to fewer um, fewer Black students and fewer Latinx students getting into selective universities, that selective universities where it's difficult to get in may see fewer numbers of Black and Latino students simply because they may not have been as competitive on the numbers like ACT or SAT or GPA, but they were benefiting from this ability to take race into account. Now, that won't be able to be a factor. Sanders discussed why these top-tier and Ivy League universities find diverse student bodies to be particularly important in the college admissions process. Yeah. So, you know, on, on the one hand, you could say diversity is important for society. It's important to make up for decades and decades of systemic racism and, and lack of opportunity. But um, there, there are studies that show that learning takes place more effectively in a diverse educational setting, that when you have a larger variety of voices and more perspectives based on race and heritage and upbringing and family background, that that enriches the educational experience of people. It enriches the diversity of viewpoints that are expressed in, and the diversity of perspectives that are addressed in the classroom, which sort of, you know, by definition contributes to everyone's education and everyone's greater appreciation of the issue. In the Grutter case 20 years ago, Fortune 500 corporations and retired military officers also filed friend of the court briefs saying, you know, diversity is important to our missions, and we can't carry it out unless there's a pipeline of diverse students coming out of our nation's colleges and universities. Now, moving on to Shelley Yoder, 
who talked about how affirmative action would affect Hoosiers and the IU Bloomington campus. First, Yoder explained her initial disappointment after the decision had been released. In June of this past year, I was incredibly disappointed, to say the least. All Hoosiers do better from the boardroom to the classroom when we are more diversified and when our classrooms and those boardrooms better reflect the population of Indiana or the United States, that is better for us all. And the ruling that came down in November really felt like we were taking steps that felt more like decades backwards. Yoder talked about what IU Bloomington will do in the up-and-coming school years in order to maintain a diverse environment without affirmative action coming into play. Well, fortunately, I know that Indiana University in my district has continued to stress that it will do everything that it can to pursue diversity in its admissions to make admissions to make sure that our classrooms are diverse classrooms. And so yes, affirmative action was ruled unconstitutional in this past June, but great universities across Indiana, my university in this district, Indiana University, is one that has been very clear that it will do all it can to ensure diversity in its admission policies. It was one method But what I've heard from universities is they are going to uh, continue to do all that they can to ensure that they have diverse classrooms. Yoder further elaborated on what she has and will bring to the table of affirmative action as our District 40 Senator. I've tried to focus every year that I have served in the Senate on legislation that acknowledges and lifts up issues of equity and equal access. Every Hoosier and every person deserves a fair shot at leading a happy, successful, and prosperous life. Life, And I will not give up fighting for that ideal on behalf of Hoosiers. Sanders answered whether or not affirmative action would stop the efforts of diversity entirely from universities and provided ways that universities can maintain the same diversity levels from before. I not necessarily. It it may in the short run hinder the it, it, it will foreclose the ability of universities to take race into account in making an admissions decision. But there are lots of other things that universities can do to promote diversity. They can do greater they they can devote more resources to outreach to say high schools with large percentages of minority students. They can do greater activities with those students when they visit the campuses to try to persuade them to come to that particular college or university. They can certainly do lots of things to make their campus environment more welcoming, to attack incidents of discrimination, to engage in diversity education. So there are lots of things that universities and colleges can do to promote the health of a diverse learning environment and a diverse campus and to try to increase recruiting and outreach of Black and Latin students, Latinx students. What they can't do is an admissions application, take that student's race into account as a positive or negative factor in the admissions decision. For WFHB Youth Radio, I'm Jean Herr.
In today's feature report, we have Prescription for Healthcare, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Medicare for All Indiana. This month is part two of an interview with Dr. A.J. Sinha, nephrologist at the IU School of Medicine and the Indianapolis VA Hospital. In this episode, we discuss changes to Medicaid, the need to move to Medicare for All, and the importance of physicians and other health workers to organize in order to have the power to make change. We turn to host Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone for more. Welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana Bloomington. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. Today, we return to the first half of our interview with Dr. A.J. Sinha, part one having been broadcast on Thursday, September 14th. Dr. Sinha is a nephrologist on the faculty of Indiana University School of Medicine and works primarily at the VA Medical Center in Indianapolis. He's active with a number of health justice projects, including Medicare for All Indianapolis, Circle City Mutual Aid, Good Trouble Coalition, Indiana Insulin for All, and with Hoosier Action on the Medicaid Unwinding. In the first episode, we talked about all these organizations and what they do, finishing with Indiana's Medicaid Unwinding that has followed on the end of the national COVID public health emergency. Over 100,000 Hoosiers have lost their Medicaid coverage. To listen to that episode, please go to the WFHP.org website, find Prescription for Healthcare under News and Public Affairs Programs, and play the September episode. Now we join Dr. A.J. Sinha again in progress. To bring Medicaid around to Medicare for All, big picture, defending Medicaid is very important. It's a lifeline for many people here in Indiana and across the United States. But just defending Medicaid isn't enough, in my opinion. That's why I'm an advocate for Medicare for All. And Medicaid is a great example of why Medicare for All is important, because it represents our tiered system that we have in the United States. We have private health insurance, which can be, although less and less, is it really a benefit to people, but it can be very good. If you're really wealthy, you can afford high deductible plans, you can get very good health care. We have some forms of government insurance like Medicare, and then we have Medicaid for poor folks. But naturally, since it's for poor folks, these are people that are very disempowered and not valued by society, definitely not valued by the elites that make the decisions that affect everyone, including poor folks. And so Medicaid is constantly under threat. It has all sorts of means testing, which is what we've been talking about with the unwinding, proving that you don't have two pennies to rub together. It's notoriously doesn't pay doctors well, and so many doctors won't accept Medicaid. And this can all happen because Medicaid is the health insurance for the poor, for the people that society generally disregards or just doesn't value. And that's a natural result of a tiered healthcare system, having one supports for the poor, and then we have private health insurance, and we have the health insurance for the elderly. If we have improved and expanded Medicare for all, Everyone would be in, no one would be out. So it includes the poor folks, it includes Jeff Bezos. But let's not, let's say Hollywood entertainers or CEOs, people that are very wealthy but can't just pay everything out of pocket. Basically, everyone would be in, nobody out. 
the tendency to throw up all these administrative burdens and hurdles in front of people would be severely mitigated because it affects everyone, including the bosses and the mayors and the the doctors and the people that society does value. So if we had everyone in and no one out, then we could have a health system that actually helps everybody. That's why I advocate for Medicare for all. I want to defend Medicaid because it's what we got and it helps people, but boy, it could be so much better without all these burdens, without all these hurdles. That makes sense. That does make sense. And it makes me think about how I have been in recent years describing that what we have in this country, you talked about the different tiers, is we have instead of a medical care system, we have a medical caste system, CASTE, all these different tiers, and people fall from one level to another. And of course, it's unbelievably complicated for everybody. Dr. A.J. Sinha, will you please tell us what your prescription for health care is? My prescription for health care is for health workers to get more active and to get more organized. I spend a lot of time trying to organize with a variety of groups, including Medicare for All Indianapolis and Insulin for All Indiana, Good Trouble. But a lot of our activism relies on asking the bosses and really the politicians to do the right thing, but they're able to ignore us frequently. Sometimes it feels very dark that, say, abortion has been largely banned in Indiana. We have a very draconian ban, as I think everyone is aware. One of my colleagues, Dr. Kaylin Bernard, here at the university, has been targeted by the state attorney general. Her license was put in threat. Health insurance premiums are rising. Things are not moving in the right direction. It's easy to fall into despair or feel that positive change is impossible because the elites, the people that can make the changes, aren't listening to us, and they can ignore us if they want to. I'll give you another example. The Health and Hospital Corporation, which runs our public hospital here in Indianapolis, makes a lot of money by administering, often administering merely on paper, but administering nursing homes here in Indiana and allows them to bill Medicaid for a lot more money. And due to poor care in one of the nursing homes, I believe in Northwest Indiana, a patient, elderly patient with dementia died. They sued Health and Hospital Corporation and they took it to the Supreme Court in order to defend their income stream. Despite being told that this jeopardized with this right-wing Supreme Court, this jeopardizes Medicaid across the country. And all of these people making the decisions of the Board of Health and Hospital Corporation are political appointees appointed by elected officials, including our city council here in Indianapolis and the mayor, and should be responsive to the public. They have public board meetings, but they, despite public outcry and a lot of activism, they just ignored Everyone, they insisted on taking the case to the Supreme Court. Fortunately, the Supreme Court found on the side, basically, of Medicaid, didn't say they allowed the, uh, it's called the Tulevsky family, their name, they allowed the, the family to sue. But this is yet another example of, again, all Democratic Party appointees being very resistant to anyone saying, hey, this could be very bad for healthcare in the United States. Okay, so. <laughs> So it's it's easy to be, as the young kids say, blackpilled and be very uh, pessimistic. But health workers have a lot of influence and power or can if we get more organized and or people in general can. And we see a lot of that in the United States and with uh, Starbucks workers, with the Teamsters and the UPS uh, contract, they were close to striking. 
And there is a movement amongst health workers, including amongst doctors who have been the elite, the, the aristocracy of health workers, unionization, largely house staff. So these are the trainee doctors. Most recently, what comes to mind is the house staff at Harvard have recently voted to unionize. But there's a strong movement towards getting more organized, recognizing that we can't get pushed. We don't like being pushed around, but there's something we can do about it. And going to our boards uh, for various quasi-public entities locally or at the federal level, state level, if we can build power and we're organized together, it makes us harder to ignore. And so that's why my prescription is to try and get more organized. I think that doctors are, my sense is there's a lot of discontent amongst doctors for a variety of reasons. Now, I somewhat snarkily feel like that doctors have only recently caught up to what it's like being an employee that everyone else has known for 200 years, yeah. having a boss that tells you how, how to do your work and telling you, hey, by the way, we fired four docs. You guys got to work more. And by the way, we're not going to pay you anymore. Doctors for the longest time used to be the, the bosses. Now we're not. We're largely hospital employees. And it really stinks for a lot of reasons that most people are aware of. And only more recently have we come to the conclusion, boy, this kind of stinks. But the solution isn't to blame other health workers, in my opinion. And it's fairly ineffective just to complain on social media or go to elected officials that can ignore you. It's more effective to get organized and to use your power that way because it's easy to ignore one or two people, but a whole organized group would be a lot harder to dismiss. I love that. That's the first time someone has really talked about that. On our show. On our Absolutely. show. <laughs> really appreciate that. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're most welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. This is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio in Bloomington, Indiana. To your good health, everyone, please stay safe and thank you for listening. We may live.